This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by the Jules Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Jules Sous Vide uses precise temperature control and their trademarked visual doneness guides to cook food exactly the way you want it. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code foodpsych to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E and use the code F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Summer Inanen's best-selling book, Body Image Remix. In this refreshingly amusing self-help guide, one of my favorite body image coaches and my friend, Summer Inanen, gives you a step-by-step way of discovering, challenging, and resetting the beliefs that are holding you back from being unapologetically you in today's perfection-obsessed society, including journal prompts and exercises. Until December 6th, Food Psych listeners can get a free copy of the audio version of Body Image Remix by heading to christyharrison.com slash remix. Note that there is some colorful language in this book, just like in my podcast. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Welcome to episode 131 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Substantia Jones, a fat acceptance activist and photographer who founded the Adipositivity Project, which is an epic photo series celebrating fat bodies. She was so delightful to talk with. We talked about recovery from chronic dieting, using photography to find body love, the patriarchy's influence on beauty ideals, the role of romantic relationships in our body image journey, and so much more. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Waleska, who writes, My company has a wellness program that pays an incentive. Of course, it evaluates your health and how long you will live based on weight and height, among other things. It also tracks physical activity. I'm very upset by this, but I would also like the money. I really do not know how to work around this. What would you recommend for people like me who have chosen to request not to be weighed? What is your take on these wellness programs at companies now? I can tell you that they benefit people with less sedentary and busy jobs. My job requires that I stay at my desk for most of the day. So thanks, Waleska, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, I just want to offer a lot of compassion for what you're going through because this is such a rock and a hard place situation. And it really sucks that diet culture is infiltrating more and more workplaces these days like this. So that's really my take on these programs, that they're awful incursions of diet culture into the workplace, right? And into a space where it really doesn't belong. Not that diet culture belongs anywhere, but I mean, there's really no reason workplaces should even be talking about weight and physical activity or have access to those health records of people's. Like, that's just ridiculous. And it's really harmful for anyone 
obviously, who's struggling to recover from disordered eating, right? So this, to me, is just another way that diet culture is a life thief because now it's stealing people's ability to fully engage in their work without having their minds taken over by thoughts of food and weight and exercise at their workplace. So it's stealing your mental space in this whole new way, just like it steals your mental space in all kinds of other ways, not to mention your time, your energy, your money, your health, like all of these other things, right? Diet culture steals all of those things from people. But this is sort of a new little tendril, a new little way that it's getting its hooks in people and stealing their life. So I am really not into these these kinds of workplace wellness programs at all. And there are a couple ways you could go here. I think, number one, it's really great to continue not to be weighed. I mean, you didn't mention your story, but I mean, just assuming since you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming that you're recovering from diet culture just like everyone here, right? So weighing yourself or getting weighed is only going to get in the way of your journey towards peace with food, right? And your ability to really honor your body. And that's important for your self-care. So I think it's really worth so much more than whatever the incentive is to take care of yourself and to continue to not be weighed, even though I know the money would be nice, right? And maybe you could really use it as many of us could. Like that is the most frustrating thing actually to me about this stuff is that they're dangling these this carrot, right? Like they're dangling money in front of people for participating in a super triggering, problematic, fat phobic ritual, or they're penalizing people by withholding the money if people choose to prioritize their self-care and their actual health, right? Their mental health and their well-being by not participating in the ritual, right? In the workplace wellness program. So it's actually really discriminatory. And so if you're up for it and if it's not going to infringe on your own self-care or the boundaries that you need to set, for your own well-being, which it might. But if if it's not going to infringe on those things, you could go in an activist direction with this. And you could talk to the people who run the Worksite Wellness Program or the people in charge at your company who made this program happen, right, about your concerns and see if there's a way maybe to get exemptions like a doctor's note or something like that to be able to get the incentive. And this is like, I mean, I'm sure that other people in your company have this issue, even if it's a really small company. If it has a Worksite Wellness Program, odds are because because so many people struggle with disordered eating, odds are there's at least a few other people who are struggling with this just like you are. So you could even raise that issue of discrimination with the people in charge and point out that this policy discriminates against people with eating disorders or other health conditions, right? And that, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so you know, I, this is not legal advice, but I think that that must violate some sort of law, right? And you could look into that. You could see if that's discrimination based on health is something that is actually a problem in your state or your area. You could also bring up the health at every size research and the research showing that body mass index has been thoroughly debunked as a measure of health, right? Because, you know, it sounds like they are using body mass index to measure health or as a proxy for health. And so you could mount a little campaign against this program with, with that research, right? And I know that's easy for me to say as an outsider because I don't have to work there every day. So that might not actually feel right to you to sort of like go at it aggressively like that. But if it does resonate with you at all, I say go for it. I say at least try talking with the people in charge and bringing up some of these points. And you can do it in a very civil way. It doesn't have to be confrontational, but just laying out the points that Honestly, I think many people in the in positions like that, in positions of running a worksite wellness program, don't even consider, 
what the impact could be on people with eating disorders, body image issues, disordered eating. And I think back to my own days before I was doing this work. And even though I had struggled and I had gone through my own eating disorder and recovery, by the time I was working as a health professional, I was recovered, but I wasn't rooted in this anti-diet movement. I was still having like the diet culture thoughts that everybody in this culture has because you can be recovered and still be you know, steeped in diet culture just like everyone else, right? And so even I, at the beginning of my career as a health professional, did not see how some of the interventions I was a part of, some of the places that I worked would do these health and nutrition interventions that I'm sure were incredibly triggering to people who were actively struggling with food and their bodies in the audience or who were our participants. But I didn't see it right? Because those dots hadn't been connected for me yet. And it wasn't until I started working in the field of eating disorders and doing the research and looking at the literature on health at every size and diet culture and all this stuff and being exposed to all these amazing people who have done this work before me that I realized, oh, wow, like I can't participate in this in this culture. I can't do health and wellness the way I've been trained to do health and wellness, you know? So all of that is to say, like, maybe approaching them with compassion, approaching the worksite wellness people with giving them the benefit of the doubt and seeing that maybe they just don't understand and you can help them understand. You can explain your position if that feels safe to you. So above all with that, I mean, I definitely say, like, if it feels safe, go for it. But trust your intuition as to whether this kind of activism or intervention is something that would work for you, because you might need to protect your own boundaries and your own self-care, too. But whatever you choose to do, I just want to give you full permission and sort of co-sign your intuition that, like, yeah, this is fucked up, you know, that these kinds of worksite wellness interventions are not actually about wellness. They're about fat phobia and they're about money and they're about the status quo. And that's not actually helping anyone's true well-being. So it's just appalling, really, to me that they're bringing diet culture into the workplace like this at so many places. And you have the power to say no and not participate in it. And that goes for everyone listening. You know, you have the power to say no to those things. You don't have to participate. I know the money and the financial incentive is so hard to resist. And for many of us, it's a real penalty, you know, for people who could really use that money. It's a huge penalty to have to not be able to, you know, to participate and get the money, right? So I think for anyone listening, really, if you're feeling activisty, if that seems like something you'd be up for, pushing back against these things and telling the people in charge of worksite wellness programs like, hey, this doesn't work for me and a big swath of the population that has disordered eating and here's why, might actually really change their minds or at least plant the seed, right? Sometimes you can't change their minds the first time, but at least you're planting a seed and maybe one day if they hear from enough people, they'll change. So yeah, I hope that helps. I'm sending lots of compassion your way. And to submit a question of your own for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, visit christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want anytime, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. 
We're brought to you today by Zola Registry. With over 500 top brands and 50,000 gifts, experiences, and cash funds, Zola Wedding Registry has everything you love about your favorite department store, plus things like honeymoon funds, cooking classes, wine subscriptions, and so much more. It's super easy to use for couples and their guests. Plus, the friendly customer service team will go above and beyond from helping you pick out the perfect blender to walking your grandmother through the registry. And with Zola's top-rated app for iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch, Couples can manage their registries on the go, and over 300,000 couples have. Best of all, your Zola registry automatically integrates into your Zola wedding website, so guests can seamlessly shop and get all the details they need in one place. My husband and I are actually among those 300,000 couples that have used it. We decided to just get married at City Hall this past summer and skip all the wedding to do, but we're planning a big party to celebrate with our friends and family, and we're using Zola as our registry. It's really perfect for us because we wanted to let people contribute to our honeymoon fund or give us some other fun experiential gifts like food tours and massages. And Zola makes all that possible in a really elegant way. Plus, we can also register for a few things for our home and have it all in one place. To sign up with Zola and receive a $50 credit towards your registry, go to Zola.com slash psych. That's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash P-S-Y-C-H to sign up for a $50 credit towards your registry. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Substantia Jones. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. It was kind of weird. I was a, I was a tiny little wisp of a child. My nickname in the pajama party circuit was Bones. And I was a very, very picky eater. My mother would lament. She would say, you don't eat enough to keep a bird alive. I heard that constantly. And I was one of four kids, and I don't recall whether or how much effort went into forcing a more varied diet on me, but it ended up that at some point she just decided there was no more effort, and she just allowed me to eat a few things that I would eat. I guess parents sometimes do that just so their child will will not die from never eating food. But my, my father was not a hands-on parent. And he once tried to force me, I don't remember the occasion, but he once tried to force me to eat what everyone else was eating for dinner. And I, of course, didn't touch any of it. And he told me that I would sit at the table until I'd eaten my dinner. And I remember thinking, wow, he does not know me at all. I was maybe six or seven or eight. And I don't think at Ever at any point that evening that I actually considered eating that plate of food. I don't remember even bargaining or trying to get out of it or thinking logically if I just struggled to get it down. Oh, no, I don't think I ever considered it. It sat there congealing in front of me until everyone was in bed and the house was dark. And my mom eventually came down and took it away and told me to go to bed. I think my father and I learned a lot about one another that evening. He never tried it again. Wow. That is really interesting and and sounds painful. That experience, I remember just being so determined that I thought these people are going to learn who I am tonight. (laughs) But I also had this weird thing, which continues today, where I have sort of very easily turned off by certain food sights and smells, not of a particular thing, but 
food in a certain context, like post-meal food. I, back then, would have negative visceral responses to certain food sites and smells. And I, I'd had to have a separate piece of flatware for each food on my plate. And if any food touched another, eating was just out of the question that day. That was, that was no can do. And a, a little remnant of that remains with me. I'm still easily grossed out by out-of-context food. I try to keep it to myself when I'm eating with others, but sometimes it's a challenge. Once I've finished eating, I have to get the plate out of my sight. Leftovers have to be put away before they fully cool off. In a restaurant, just the sight of one of those big gray bussing tubs, I don't know a better word, just looking at it can turn my stomach. I have to look away and focus on something else. So I guess I still have some weirdness. I can use one utensil for a whole meal now, <laughs> so there's improvement. And if my food touches, my family members still make fun of me, but I'm not crazy about it, but it's not a horror now. <laughs> I'm a little better about my food touching. Wow, that's so interesting. Do you know where, what the origin of that was? Like, can you remember a time when? No, I don't remember anyone else in my family being, you know, having that same thing at all. I think it might, it might have even contributed to the fact that I decided never to have kids because the sight of, I mean, I love kids, but the sight of kids eating, it's like, ay, 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 I don't know how people can endure that. And it's been weird for me because it makes volunteer work an issue. I've always been very much into volunteerism, but I can't do anything relating to food. For more than a decade, I worked and volunteered in hospitals at dinner time, And it was every single time was a struggle. I'd have to adopt all manner of mental tricks to distract myself from the sights and smells of hospital food. And for a chronic volunteer, it's especially tricky at Thanksgiving when pretty much all holiday-related volunteer opportunities are food-related naturally. Once in my efforts to avoid that, I got myself into a bit of a mess. I struck up a conversation with a man on a bus about Thanksgiving was coming up. He had just come out of a church before getting on the bus, this sort of historic church on the Upper West Side. And he mentioned that he was there preparing for their Thanksgiving meal that was going out to the local homeless community. So I asked if they might have need for volunteers to do something other than handle food. And he said, sure. And he was very jovial about it. But when he learned that I was the one I was asking for. He got kind of chilly, which I didn't understand at the time. And he seemed to start discouraging me. But I persisted and I showed up on Thanksgiving for my non-food related volunteer gig. And I walked in and discovered why he had tried to discourage me. Apparently, this church was the New York branch of the one instrumental in promoting California's Prop 8 referendum. And the whole thing was like this big anti-LGBT propaganda thing. And it was was going to be a part of their Thanksgiving festivities. So I just turned on my heels and went (laughs) home. I thought, 
I'm not going to try this church Thanksgiving thing anymore. Thanksgiving is just not the day for me to volunteer. Uh, yeah, that sounds awful. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. So yeah, that's really interesting that the, the sort of pickiness extended. It was almost like a sensory issue, it sounds like, and still is like a an issue with the sights and smells of food as opposed to... I don't know. I think it might... I think just being a picky eater might be fairly common with children. I've read a little about why children love ketchup but hate mustard, and it's sort of fascinating. But it wasn't strictly... Like, one of the few things I would eat was canned corned beef hash. So once my mom... She would try to trick me. She made homemade corned beef hash, but I was, I could not be fooled. It would have been far more delicious by anyone else's standards, but the potato cubes were just a little too big. And I thought, no, I'm not going to eat that. That's not my corned beef hash. Wow. That's funny. Yeah. I think it was, the situation was not helped by just letting me eat those few things and not learning about feeding yourself as an adult and having a varied diet. I did not learn those things mm-hmm. as a child. Right. And so, yeah, how did your relationship with food evolve from there then? The things I hated the most, I now love. I don't have any, there aren't really many foods that I would never eat. Certainly nothing that I wouldn't try. And something can be on my plate and look pretty gross. But if I'm assured it's delicious, I'm still going to eat it. So the issue is better now. And I definitely understand the importance of having a buried diet, even though it wasn't necessarily taught to me as a child. I will say one thing that has probably lingered is we did not have snacks or treats or sweets when I was a kid at all. No carbonated drinks. I can probably count on one hand the times that we had cookies in the house. And they'd be those cheap store brand cookies that were rock hard. But oh my God, it was the best thing in the world. We just did not have any of that stuff. But I don't think it was because of any health consequences associated with them. I, I always felt that it was because of money, because we didn't have a lot of it. And I don't know if I assumed that we didn't have those things because we couldn't afford them or if I was told that we couldn't. Because I had older siblings, eight and 10 years older. So when they got to be teenagers and could buy candy bars, I would see them eating candy bars. And, you know, so I would squeal, of course, but I was assured when I get old enough to buy my own candy bars, I can eat all the mounds I want. So that has probably contributed to my very robust sweet tooth today. Yeah. So it's like a mark of agency and adulthood and like grown upness almost to have access to those foods. I don't even know if it's that as much as just rebelling from the feeling of deprivation. Like even before I became an adult, I started babysitting very young. And I think I was considered by the neighborhood peeps to be mature for my age. So like 11, I'm babysitting. And there were certain things I would search for in their house as soon as the kids were asleep. And I won't get into some of them, but I can tell you that food was high on the list and sweets specifically because it was so foreign to me to have access to sweets. 
that I just wouldn't control myself. Yeah, that's a really common issue, I think, is like the kids that don't have access to sweets or snack foods or fun foods of any kind tend to end up with this really hyper awareness and hyper focus on them when they get older. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the deprivation. It's it's real. Yeah. I think I enjoy my hyper awareness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do not beat myself up over it. I call myself a flaming gastrosexual. Yeah. <laughs> and I definitely on the decadent side and I really don't beat myself up over it. That's something the civilians don't always understand. Yeah, was that always the case for you that you didn't beat yourself up or did you have a time that you did? Yeah, I oh yes, I was a chronic dieter from the time I started developing early and profoundly, like age 10, way too early to really understand how to respond to the way people are now going to respond to your body and wasn't given much guidance. So it was mostly, it was a weird combination of very unpleasant and really fascinating, depending on which body part we're talking about. I definitely had very strong feelings from early on that the way men were now speaking to me and looking at me was wrong. I knew that this was not appropriate for anyone, but specifically for someone my age. So I went from really thin as a child and then developed in a way that I started getting these negative messages about weight, but more in a cautionary way. You better watch out. You know, you don't want to get fat. And then I did get, (laughs) but I never, so I started back to the feeling, a combination of fascination and disdain. I was fascinated by having breasts. There was never a point where I disliked that, but hips and thighs, not so much. And I would, I would try to sit in a certain way that made my thighs look less shapely. I would try to hide my hips and I started dieting very, very young. This was not something that was promoted at home because I was still would be considered thinner than average. But in my mind, I was jolly well fat and had to do something about it because I had these, you know, soft places now that I didn't like. So I started doing the kind of diets that teenagers hear about, you know, just the dumb stuff. And I, I dieted pretty constantly until my late 30s. And some of it involved, oh my goodness, I took diet pills at like 17. We had a, we had a diet pill doctor in town that everybody knew who he was, and that's all he did. He didn't care. I guess it was a big moneymaker for him, and you knew what to say, what to ask for, and he gave it to you without question. And I learned that really can mess you up in so many ways, like no other drugs can, or few other drugs can. So I did that for a while. I did all manner of dieting for decades and then ended up doing FenFen. I don't know if people today are very aware of what FenFen was. Yeah, I mean, I hope they don't know about it. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope they, uh, but I find that a lot of people did not 
haven't heard about it because it was short-lived, fortunately, but an off, what would you call it, an off-use? Oh, an off-label use, yeah. Off-label use of two drugs, one of which was not unlike the speedy diet pills I'd taken at 17. And I was so, Christy, this gives you an idea where my head was at. I read an article in either the, I think it was in the Washington Post. This had just begun being prescribed by only two doctors in the country, one in New York, one in outside of Baltimore. I traveled to Baltimore from southeastern Virginia to see this doctor to get on this drug. I was so enthusiastically ready for this. And it's basically um, an appetite suppressant. And it caused me to eat so little that I at one time called the doctor to ask if I might die from never putting food into my mouth. I literally had maybe bites of food every day. And when you're eating that little, I was, you know, when you're, when you're in a position to do something like that, you're not, your focus is not nutrition and health. So those bites were not very mindful of nutrition. And it also caused this weird affinity for Coke. So I was eating almost nothing, drinking lots of Coke. I smelled like cake and I really thought this is going to be what kills me. And I'm doing this voluntarily. But it still took me until the news came out that it was causing heart valve damage, which became a huge story. So that's when I stopped. And it looks like I escaped the heart valve damage issue. But, but that's what it took. That, that's how far it went for me. That was the end of dieting for me. Yeah, it really like says a lot about the power of diet culture and the sort of investment people have in dieting, that it takes a national scandal about something causing heart damage to get people to stop. And when, you know, when it's obviously causing ill effects in you beforehand, like leading up to hearing about that, it sounds like that wasn't enough to stop you. Like, you know, just knowing it's probably not good that I'm eating so little. It took a near guarantee that I would die for me to stop. Actually, I don't. I can't even say that because they pulled it off the market. They made it illegal. I don't know what happened to the doctors who were prescribing it, but I don't think you could get it anymore for that purpose. So I can't even say for sure that it was a decision I made. I I was forced to stop. Yeah. Oh, that's really that's really sad. But I'm also so glad that you did end up stopping. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's likely why I'm the size I am now. Because um, by the time I started, this was, you know, like a couple of decades of dieting, including diet pills of multiple sorts. So each time I would, of course, lose weight and then gain it back with a dividend. So I ended up bigger and bigger and bigger each time. And it, it wasn't until I stopped dieting and regained pr- that weight that my weight stopped fluctuating for, you know, forever. Yeah. I mean, that's so important, I think, for people to hear the like individual experience 
that we see in the research too, you know, on a global level that like, really, that's what happens to people's bodies. Like you can't sustainably lose weight and keep it off forever. And for most people, like the, you know, 95 plus percent of people end up regaining all the weight they lost back. And then up to two thirds of those end up regaining more than they lost. And so that creates that cycle of just gaining and gaining and gaining over time. But in the short term, it looks like you're losing weight. And that's, I think, what's so insidious about dieting is that in the short term, people think they're succeeding, right? And the, the diet is the diet is working. And then if you sort of take this long view, it's like, oh, no, it's not actually doing what it's supposed to do, what it claims to do. It's doing the opposite. It's a brilliant business model, isn't it? Yeah incredibly brilliant. It keeps people coming back to the, the diet industry over and over again. And never at any point do we stop and think that it's their fault. We think I'm too weak. I'm not strong enough to maintain this. The weight I'm putting back on is my fault. And I'm going to go throw more money at the diet industry. So it, it's kind of genius. If they weren't monsters, I would almost respect them. Yeah. No, it's like evil genius. This is what I think about when people within the fat acceptance world, there's a lot of discussion about how we do and should feel about people who've chosen to lose weight. And the first thing I always feel is compassion because A, I've been there. I've I've been there at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. And I know all those things that they're going through. I know what their motivation is. And I also know what's going to be the end game for 85 to 95% of them. I know that they're going to be fat again. And I know that they're going to need this community again. So my feelings toward them are much more motivated by compassion. I don't want to kick them out of any clubhouse. They need it and they're going to need it even more when they return. Yeah, that's a really important sentiment, I think. And definitely, I would agree with that. I think people need so much compassion for that journey, whatever part they're in, because they are going to need fat acceptance Yes, at the point when they come back. And, and I think really everyone, everyone needs fat acceptance. You know, the world needs fat acceptance on this larger scale. And even people in thin bodies need fat acceptance because it's internalized fat phobia that everyone experiences basically living in this culture. And then also fat phobia on a social scale creates so much social injustice that causes obviously disproportional harm to people in larger bodies and the largest bodies, you know? So we need, we need to fix that at a societal and systemic level. And, but even for individual folks in thin bodies, like eradicating fat phobia is important for your own personal recovery too. So yeah, I think we really all need it. And for people to embark on weight loss after having been in the fat acceptance movement, it just speaks to how deeply entrenched diet culture is. Yes. It's very powerful and they have a lot of money behind them and we don't. So if we're, we're constantly in this David and Goliath thing with them, I, you know, I of course like to think we have truth on our side, but that's not very powerful these days. Truth, truth and no money to, to push it. 
even the people who live the experience don't always acquire the lesson by the end when they go through a great trauma to lose and maybe sometimes put their health in jeopardy, usually put their health in jeopardy, and then then come back and regain the weight. Far too many of them go back and keep going back. And that's what's really scary. Yeah. I think far too many of them don't get that message that it's not your fault, too, because the machine of diet culture is so huge and has so much money behind it, like you said, that it's just pumping out this message again and again of like, not even a question of whether the diet failed, but like you failed, do it harder, do it more, like keep coming back, try this other thing, you know, maybe this diet didn't work for you. But here's this new manifestation that's going to work. Here's this new, here's this new diet. When in fact, if you do any research, you discover this is not new at all. They right. just recycle old things. You know, there's like, a I don't know, 20, 30 year cycle of diets and everything has been done before under a, a different name with a different, you know, different new book. Yes. It, nothing is new. It's all old and it didn't work then and it won't work now. But we are on this hamster wheel of doing what the angst industrial complex tells us to do. And and then on top of that, being their tools and convincing others that my body is insufficient and so is yours. You should also feel bad about your body. So it's it's just a constant, it's being fed as we're not being fed, it's being fed. Oh my God, yeah, that's really well said. And I think that that idea that like people sort of recruit each other into it is really profound too. Like it's this sort of multi-level marketing scheme or something that they're, you know, the exactly. diet industry is at the top of it, but then we're all the you know, unless we've opted out and sort of really seen the other side, like we're all the marketers below, you know, the downstream or whatever. Exactly. It's also being fed by the patriarchy telling us that we as women, and this is not exclusively, of course, a women's issue, but it's predominantly, the patriarchy is telling us that we as women should not feel good about our bodies. We should never be satisfied. We should, when we get together, we should not chat about important things. We should chat about how much we all hate our bodies. Because if I don't, then this new friend will think that I'm conceited or boastful. So I have to, if she starts putting her body down, I have to do it. And that leads to this next, have you read so-and-so's book about, you know, how you can never eat and, you know, how you can lob your arm off or weight loss through amputation or, you know, so that's, it's a cyclical thing. And the patriarchy is definitely feeding it. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's such a that's such a powerful message too. That like, if you really look at women's social circles, and this includes trans women too. I think you know, not just cis women, but the sort of absolutely you know pressure on femmes of any stripe to participate in that kind of denigration of bodies is so profound that people even who people who know better even will sometimes get sucked into it you know yeah. I hear clients say like well I can't I just it's just so hard to like fight against that in the moment and I just find myself getting sucked in even though I know that body acceptance is really the way to go and that's my value but I it's just really hard for me to fight back in this in this moment and it begins at a very young age and it affects not only how girls, young girls feel about their bodies, but it, it affects 
sexual growth and, and later sexual function and sexual happiness and fulfillment. If you can't accept your body, it's going to be very hard to to be sexually fulfilled. Totally. Yeah. If you're hating your body, how are you going to take pleasure in it? How are you going to allow someone else to take pleasure in it? It's very difficult. It's it's very difficult. Yeah. So what did that journey look like for you from, you know, deciding to stop dieting or sort of being forced to stop dieting? But I guess you could have gone back and done another diet that wasn't the pills. So there was probably an element of choice there somewhere, just sort of being like, I'm done. That was a pretty big scare, though. So after I stopped dieting, I had a few years of sort of body image purgatory where I was not doing anything to change my body, but I was not yet liking my body. I was I was kind of in the passive wish years of my life where I just wished I was thinner, but I was not willing to jeopardize my health anymore to do anything to make it happen. So it took a bad relationship to prompt me to seek out partners with a preference for bodies like mine. And while it would not have been good for me to halt my progression there, it was a wonderfully happy springboard to falling in love with my body. First, as seen through the eyes of others, through the eyes of someone that I love, then through my own eyes. And my body love includes days that are more body-like than love and days of straight-up neutrality. I may not have reverence for my body, but I do always have respect for it. And I'm grateful for the origins of that, which definitely had to do with love. <laughs> yeah, so having someone else love you and, and love your body was able to sort of model that for you. It helped me get out of where I was, and it helped introduce me to where I was going in more ways than one. I was that, in fact, that the first long-term relationship I had after I made this, this change in what I was seeking out, that, that was, I was in a relationship with someone who was very adoring of my body. And while I very much enjoyed that, and I never questioned the earnestness of it, I didn't see what he did. And I wanted to, I wanted to share the relationship that he had with the way I looked. I wanted to see what he saw. So I began exploring through the camera lens, aided by the fact that digital photography was new and burgeoning and making it more practical. And I was amazed at the way I could appear to my camera a way that was very different from what I saw in the mirror. I rarely saw that in the mirror. Then I gradually began seeing it in the mirror too. And all because I started taking pictures of myself and it eventually morphed into the Adipositivity Project. I, I eventually coupled what I was doing, taking pictures of myself with things that I'd observed over the years about the way humans behave, about human nature, about how we respond visually to that which we find aesthetically pleasing and how it influences other aspects 
of our lives. And I've discovered that the way one views another person aesthetically can influence the way they view that person in non-physical ways as well. And likewise, I observed that we can change the way one views that which they find repulsive through just constant positive depictions of it, just a barrage of, in my case, photos of fat people, beginning with me and then moving on to other women and then moving on to other fat people of all genders. I put it all together and came up with the Adipositivity Project. Mm. So it was born really out of your own experiences, your own experimentation with accepting your own body. Absolutely. That's really cool. And what did you find? I'm curious that, you know, that observation you made about how visually sort of learning to accept and appreciate different bodies helps you accept and appreciate other facets of a person's existence too. Like what was that experience like for you? I'll tell you exactly how I discovered it. I spoke earlier about spending a decade and working in hospitals. What I was doing was uh, working for a nonprofit where we brought musicians into hospitals to perform at the bedsides of patients. And I really, my only job was observing this, making sure the patients were happy, making sure everybody was happy. And later I began training people to do that. So that's a lot. That's 10 years of observing tiny audiences where people are enjoying or not enjoying a private music performance. And I noted over those years that people responded to the way the musician looked in ways that I did not like but had to accept. A musician can have great musicianship, clever lyrics, really connect with the patient, but if they aren't traditionally pretty in a Western way, in the, the way that we believe the you know Western beauty ideals, then the patient may not respond as positively as they often did with the very, very conventionally good-looking people who may not be as good uh, a musician. Mm. And so when I first observed this, I yeah, I made that same noise you just made. <laughs> I thought, this sucks. This is a fucked up world and I don't want to live in it because people... But then I had to accept that... This is an element of nature. The people who are responding positively or negatively aren't aware of it. It's not on purpose. They're not, they can't make it happen and they can't make it stop. So what if we accept this horrible aspect of human nature and fuck with it? So I decided if I can cause people to view fat people in a different way, then they will pay more attention to them in other ways. They will give them more respect. They will ridicule them less. There will be less discrimination against them. And I found that in that it worked for myself just to see positive images. This was shortly after Mode Magazine came out. And I remember thinking I was in that bad relationship at the time. And the reason it was bad, oh, there are many reasons it was bad. But one of them was that, you know, he was, he did not have a preference for, 
for a fat partner. He was not down with my body. He would, he wanted me to lose weight. And it's so hard for me to even imagine living with somebody who felt that way about me now, but that's where I was at the time. That was, I was still in that, that limbo, that purgatory. But then he, over the years started, you know, he bought home mode magazine and said, have you seen this? He was excited. He admitted didn't want to admit, but he admitted that he started noticing bigger women on the street now and thinking about them differently. He thought, you know, I was poisoning his mind with my fat body that he couldn't resist. And so I thought, you know, it's happening to him and it's happening to me too. My image of my own body and my image of other fat bodies, my opinions were changing just from repeated positive depictions of them. So I knew I had to put it in action. What changed was I thought, oh, I'm going to change the way the world feels about fat people visually. And then that's going to change how they feel about fat people in all other ways. But what I didn't realize was it was the fat people needed, needed it much more than the general public did. I started getting mail right away once I started the project from people who had really tragic opinions of their bodies, you know, that I never felt. So I had to learn from people writing me about how unfortunate it can be, how, how these messages can land in a really negative way and cause body shame and body hate. I mean, one woman that I quote often wrote me and said she had just discovered the project and looked at all the images. And she said, today is the first day in memory that I have not cried about my body. And that was an experience that I had not lived. And and I had to learn that and, and appreciate it. And I did. So I shifted my focus to then focus more on the people who were in the photos, focus on adiposers, giving them what they want, giving fat people what they need to see. And it's been confirmed many times over that just just looking at positive depictions of bodies like our own helps our self-image as far as our bodies go. Absolutely. How did you find the adiposers that you, and I love that word too, by the way, how did you find the people? (laughs) In the beginning, it was like the first adiposer was me. Many of the first images were just of me and and then a few of my friends. And really early on, like pretty much immediately, I never had to ask anymore. People started contacting me asking to be adiposers. And it's I still get many more requests to be adiposers than I than I'm able to keep up with. I will still occasionally will ask someone to pose for me if it's a special circumstance that usually has to do with tattoos. <laughs> but usually I don't do the asking. They do the asking. And my rule is I will photograph everybody who wants to be an adiposer as long as they promise me they're fat and as long as we can physically get in the same room with my camera which usually means them coming to New York. Mm-hmm. That's a big commitment to be able to do that for everyone who asks. Yeah, it's gotten out of hand. Um, I can't, I'm not going to be able to keep doing that. It's gotten to be more than I can do, but I'll figure it out. 
Yeah. Well, I know it, I've seen that you have a Patreon campaign now and that you're doing some special stuff for the people who are Patreons and stuff. So is that a way that you've found to to make it a little more manageable? I'll tell you, that's what popped into my head when I said I'll figure it out because having that Patreon account has changed everything. I had actually stopped shooting for six months because I didn't have, you know, it was always self-funded. I'm a broke ass girl. I can't, you know. So when you see at a positivity images where we're outdoors out on the street in New York, it's usually not by choice <laughs> It's because we didn't have money for to rent a studio or anything. So now that I have patrons, it's so great. Like people, you know, ask to be an adiposer. I say, sure. I don't even have to tell them about, let me do the talking when the police approach us. <laughs> I don't have to, you know, give them the lecture about it's not really illegal, but the cops don't always know it's not illegal. So, you know. Because it's mostly nude, right? So it's you'd be doing like nudes on the street or semi-nudes or whatever. Yes, yes. Always up to the adiposer. But, you know, we want to show as much body as the adiposer is comfortable with. And in New York, it is legal to be topless for any reason and to be completely nude for the purpose of art. But cops don't always know it. They never like it. So they still try to try to shoo us away, try to threaten us. I had one approach with lights and sirens <gasps> one time. Oh God. And I had and we had just started shooting and it was an important shoot. I was not gonna stop. So the poor, the, the couple that I was shooting, their eyes got really big and I'm still shooting. And I said, let's just keep going until I feel somebody's hand on my shoulder. I'm going to keep shooting. <laughs> and there's, wow. of course, a crowd watching because crowds usually gather. And that's probably one of them that called the cops. But my concern is not for me. It's for the people who are naked because... I've given, I have a very lengthy info sheet that I have people read before a shoot. And I tell them what to expect before, during, and after. And I tell them, people have accused me of trying to scare people away. I just want to make sure everybody's fully informed about what can happen. So I tell them, if you're arrested, this will happen. I feel like it's a bigger risk for men. I have people come up for shoots, especially younger people. And when we had the discussion about whether or not they're going to be new, they say, um, yeah, sure. I think, no, no, that's not how you decide to be nude forever on the internet. <laughs> As the info sheet said, please give it some thought because you will be ridiculed. Your photo might be stolen and used for purposes of hate. You have to be prepared for all these things. I do what I can to prevent that. But you have to be prepared for the possibility. So, you know, what can you do? I, I, I do what I can as far as warning people. And some people, it does scare them away. And I'm, I'm always cool with that. I understand, you know, it depends on what you have to lose if you are discovered. I mean, people have had their jobs threatened for being adiposers. People have had their custody of their children threatened for being adiposers. So... I want people to take all that into consideration because it's a big deal and it's forever, no matter what. If I post their image and take it down seconds later, it's still on the internet forever because people have grabbed it right away. 
So I encourage people to give it a lot of thought. That's super important because it is, I mean, it's like an informed consent sort of issue, right? Like people need to know and be able to consent to it, having thought through all those possibilities. And also like how shitty that we live in a world where that happens, you know, it's, yeah, ugh, breaks my heart. It's unfortunate. A lot of people don't understand that people like my civilian friends don't, they say, why do you get death threats and rape threats? Why do people hate you? I can see where they might not find fat people attractive, but why the hate? And it's, it is kind of hard to give an answer. You know, I mean, I don't exactly know. I think it's more fear than anything else. I think it's the need that human nature causes us to need a, a boogeyman and fat people are convenient boogeyman. The diet industry is convincing us that we are costing people tax dollars. And there are lots of things that go that fuel this hate. But as far as really grasping and understanding it, I can't and I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to get inside the mind of someone with that much hate. Like it just it doesn't feel doesn't feel good. But I've also noticed that speaking about patriarchy again, that plays a role too in the sort of virulence of fat hate, like patriarchy, white supremacy, bigotry of all kinds. Like it seems to go together because I was thinking about the the wake of the Charlottesville attack and how people, the white supremacists there talked about the woman they killed, they murdered. And there was a lot of anti-fat bigotry being spewed in the wake of that. And I think there's, I think, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy and those sorts of worldviews sort of amplify this boogeyman of, of larger bodied people too. It's, it's like, it just adds fuel to the fire. Yeah, it's just yet another target, I guess, and, and a target that they probably assume is weak. Last, I, I, I think this was toward the end of last year or the beginning of this year, I became the target of neo-Nazi groups, and that was a new thing. I mean, I've I've had a lot of hate and threats over the years, but this was new, and I can't remember their name, but I wouldn't want to say it anyway, but there's a neo-Nazi publication that was forced out after Charlottesville because they were at the epicenter of a lot of the organizing. And they published a thing trying to get people to attack me on Twitter. I think they tried to dox me and they couldn't come up with much is what it looked like. Oh, thank God. So they tried to get people to attack me on Twitter. And Christy, it was just adorable. I wanted to pat their little head because it was so tepid. The response was, I realized, like, really? That's all you got? You know? And then Milo Yiannopoulos came after me, too. And it was it was all, he couldn't get people riled up either. And people were saying, why Why the neo-Nazis? Why are they, What? what is their issue with you? And I couldn't exactly figure it out at first, but then someone suggested that it might have to do with an increase in interracial couples who were a part of the Valentine series at the Adipositivity Project. And I thought, well, this is definitely the devolution of how we handle race. They are looking for more targets and proudly presented them with some. Right. Yeah, well, it's like they're the enemies of acceptance, it seems like. Yes. You're showcasing acceptance of various kinds of bodies and identities. And so 
I guess that makes you a target. But how horrible. It's funny. The biggest or one, maybe not the biggest, but a surprising target of hate has been my website, fatpeopleflippingyouoff.com. <laughs> and it's, this really makes me laugh. I get so much hate mail from that site. I think it's because it just enrages them to see fat people giving them through the camera the bird and having a, an expression, a facial expression of fuck youism. You know, like, I don't care what you think. You can think ill of me. You can stay on Reddit and 4chan all day long talking shit about fat people. And this is how I respond with my finger. It just enrages them. So I get just an inordinate amount of, of hate mail from that. And it's also just adorable. God, yeah, that's really interesting. Like the rebellion and the sort of stance of like, I don't care, like fuck youism, like you said. Exactly. That's interesting that that is so enraging because it does, that's challenging the status quo and kind of directly going after the bigotry and the hate and just like staying firm in the face of that. So I can see why people who are the proponents of that would probably be enraged by it. Yeah. How do you handle that? How do you like emotionally for yourself and for the people in your community? Like, how do you handle that kind of hate? I have to say, I don't know why, but it doesn't get to me the way I see it get to others. I feel that it's kind of a responsibility to not let it go beyond me as much as is possible. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to advertise it. I'm not going to put it out there because it's, I don't know who is reading what I put out there. It might be people who are very troubled, who are having a really bad time accepting their body and who they are. And the last thing I want to do is amplify these voices of hate and help them have access to the people that I have access to. So I usually just ignore it. There have been a couple of times when I have not been able to ignore it. One was when I was preparing to lecture at a university a couple of years ago with another speaker who is an author, and I was alerted to the fact that on 4chan, which for people who don't know is this dark underbelly of the internet, in a fat hate group, one of the students at that university posted about it, posted a picture of the poster and the information about the lecture and the event and said, asked his brothers in that fat hate group, what can I do about this? I can't let these bitches speak at my university. So people started giving him offering suggestions as to what he should do. And it ended where you would expect it to. People started suggesting that he kill us. And then they started suggesting ways he could kill us. So I felt like I needed to let the university and the organizer of that event know, because this was somebody who said he was going to be there and do this. So it was a bit less abstract and more, this is going to be a butt in in a seat in front Mm -hmm. of us. It's a direct threat. Yes, it was. It felt very direct. And I definitely needed to let the other speaker know. And they took it very seriously. They they called in the police department. And between the police department and the college's 
Security Department, they tried to find the source, and I knew they wouldn't because you you can't. It's completely anonymous, but they just increased the security detail, and the police department was there that day, and they were great. And some people were a little bit unnerved, and I still didn't think anything would happen. And in the lecture, I called out. I said, if this if this person is here, you know, let's talk. Because, you know, I, I sort of encouraged him to do some of the things that were suggested, like make whale noises and throw stuff at us. And I said, no, let's give it your best shot. And, of course, he either either he was not there or he thought better of it or was afraid because it was, you know, pretty sizable audience and the cops were there. Right. So nothing happened. That was that was one time when I felt compelled to follow through and do something about it. But usually it's pretty easy for me to ignore. I can't really think of any of these people who I find just sad wads of hate. I can't think of anything they could do or say that that would upset me. Not that I want to challenge them, of course, <laughs> right. because I'm human. They're probably not listening, though. No offense. Cause no, I, I I agree. They're not I, your audience. That's really not my audience. And I feel like, <laughs> in a way, I'm a little bit protected. I think I'm protected by a lot of things, like partially thin privilege and ageism and whatever, all this stuff, right? I have an identity that is sort of not the target of a lot of these hateful people. But also, I think a podcast is like, you have to really go deep. Like, we've been talking for almost an hour now. You know, you have to, like, sit through all of this and listen to it and listen to <laughs> all of my episodes. Oh, really. God you help know. you, people. You don't want to sit through all this. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, you know, you might learn something along the way. Like, you might actually be exposed to ideas that will change your mind. So I think people don't, you know, have the time for that or, or take the, the energy to do it. I feel like visual media and blog posts and stuff are maybe be more easy targets for that kind of thing. Yeah. And videos. Mm, yes. YouTube commenters are probably the most notoriously hate-filled commenters. Yeah, they're terrible. I I have a, the podcast is set up to like automatically spit my episodes out to a YouTube video also. And it's just there's no visual. It's just the audio. But I discovered that I have to go in. There's no way to automatically turn off comments. So every Monday when it comes out, I go in and manually turn off the comments so that I don't <laughs> have to deal with the horrible hate because, I, you know, lesson learned. Well, I thank you in advance. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. No, I there's just some really foul corners of the Internet. And I think it's important for people to just do their best to stay out of them or to protect themselves from them because it's it's not fun. I'm probably a little thinner skinned than you are in terms of that stuff. Like if I if something does come through, because there occasionally are trolls that get through and it does get to me in terms of like just feeling really creeped out. I think that's the primary thing is just feeling like super, super icked out that these people are somehow finding me or in my audience and like also very angry and protective on behalf of anyone that they're criticizing that's been on my podcast or in my community. So it's a challenge. I think kind of learning to navigate that is just a part of being a public person on the internet, I guess, but it sucks. It cheeses me off when a specific adiposer is targeted, like it's a commentary on a specific image, or if an image is stolen for the purpose of ridicule, which happens. And sometimes it happens in a you know very 
big national way. And that's a time when I do have to step in and issue a cease order. And so I get pissed off not only because they've hurt my friend or made my friend sad, but also because it's time consuming. So I'm cursing them with my potty mouth the whole time I'm filing these cease orders. And, but you know, when it's, when it's just me, I just have a very strong fuckuism and very strong knowledge that this isn't going to hurt me. Yeah. I mean, fuckuism is so powerful. It's like such a nice suit of armor to wear because it, it really does help. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And people, you know, a lot of people don't get that. And they say, why do you have to be negative? Why, you know, can't you just be all flowery and lovely? And it's because we are too often told, and I say too often, not not necessarily too often, because it is effective. We are told to ignore them, just ignore them, leave them alone, and they'll stop. And while it might be effective, it's not very satisfying in a human way. Sometimes we just need to say, fuck you. And it feels good. It sounds good. It, I mean, just that, that K-wolf sound in your throat and flipping the bird and growling, it feels good. So, you know, it might not be as effective in a making them go away way, but it just feels good. And we need things that feel good. And if, if we have things that feel good, if we have access to things that feel good, I say we should engage in them. And I apply that to food as well. It's ridiculous to me that so many people think that we should ignore the fact that there's a pleasure element associated with food. Why on earth should we ignore that? It exists. So if you believe in God, you have to say, well, God put that there. So am I saying, fuck you, God, by ignoring it? If you don't believe in God, then it exists in nature for a reason, the pleasure aspect of eating. And I like to think I'm very much an expert in the pleasure aspect of eating. And I enjoy it with relish and I never beat myself up over it. And I encourage other people to as well. That's so important. Yeah, because pleasure is such a huge, like pivotal point in people's relationships with food. It's it's the center of being able to have a good connection with food and a nourishing relationship with food, like especially for people who've had chronic dieting histories or eating disorders or disordered eating. Like it's so important, I think, to get to the point where you can take pleasure in food again, because it is like this powerful fuck you to diet culture and to the eating disorder to say like, no, I get to claim this pleasure and this is here for me. And it wouldn't be here if it didn't give us something right like we my view is like we evolved over millennia to get pleasure out of food because that's what keeps us alive that's what kept us around as a species just like we get pleasure out of sex because that kept us around as a species serves a purpose it not only feels good it serves a purpose right exactly and so doing what feels good is really in our dna and to deny that is to is to deny a part of our humanity or to let people screw it all together with feelings of guilt and denial. You're right. It's denying a part of our humanity and the experience of pleasure is necessary for our well-being. Totally. That's our health. 
Right. Yeah. I think there's so much emphasis these days placed on food and health and that sort of a certain type of austerity is going to supposedly help your physical health, but they don't talk about mental health. And mental health is actually a huge component of physical health too, of overall well-being. So denying yourself pleasurable foods and access to variety and things that are going to make you feel good and be enjoyable is actually detrimental to your health. So when people say like, I'm doing this elimination diet or I have to eat clean or whatever it is. I'm like, that's actually not good for your health. You know, you think it is because there's all this noise being made about it, but they're focusing on this tiny sliver of what makes up the pie of health. Exactly. It's just not sustainable. So yeah, I think pleasure is huge, a huge part of this. Pleasure is huge. And the fuck youism, I think, is is really important both like for reclaiming your relationship with food and for reclaiming your relationship with your body and being able to survive in this world, in this diet culture world, because there are going to be kind of constant onslaughts of fat phobia and diet mentality that come into your life, right? We can't escape that. So I think having a certain rebellious stance and like a little bit of anger actually really helps propel you through that world. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, so good to talk with you, Substantia. <laughs> I could talk with you forever, but I know we're... It's great to talk to you. This has been big, big fat fun. Yes. Yeah. So tell <laughs> us where people can find you and learn more about the Adipositivity Project and your other work. You can go to adipositivity.com and that's A-D-I positivity, all one word, dot com. And in fact, the... 2018 Adipositivity calendar is out and you can find information on it also at adipositivity.com. And there's something big, special, new this year. There's also a companion calendar that pays tribute to the Valentine series, which is every February we do, we focus on fat people and their partners. So we've got uh, two calendars to choose from this year, or you can get them both. Mm, I love it. It's about love, love, love. Oh, that's so great. And I totally encourage people to check that out and also to check out your Patreon campaign because that makes this kind of thing possible, right? Oh, it does. (laughs) It does. It's made all the difference. I only wish I had done it years ago when people started begging me to. (laughs) But, you know, I'm a recovering Southerner and we don't like to ask for money. So we'd rather die. And I almost (laughs) did. But yes, yes, absolutely. Patreon.com slash Adipositivity. Love it. Go and Give till it hurts. And oh, well, we should also remind people to get a fatpeopleflippingyouoff.com, which is exactly what it sounds like. You can contribute your own bird. I encourage you to. Oh, I love that. That's so great. We'll put links to all those in the show notes, too, so people can find them easily. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Christy, this has been great. It's been so much fun. I thank you on a personal, individual level, but also in the big global way for what you're doing for people and for the world. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And same back to you. I really think what you're doing is amazing and world-changing. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. 
So that's our show. If you've gotten some value from this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Also, make sure you're subscribed to Food Psych, especially on the Apple platforms, because that helps bring us up in the rankings and get your friends to subscribe as well. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 131. It's christyharrison.com slash 131. This episode was brought to you by Jules Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Great cooking is part art, part science. Jules Sous Vide takes care of the science, cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jules, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash and use the code FOODPSYCH to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E and use the code FOODPSYCH, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. This episode was also brought to you by my online media and coaching business, Food Psych Programs Incorporated. I don't think I've actually mentioned that on the podcast yet, but I am now a very tiny corporation dedicated to helping bring down the life thief that is diet culture. If you're in recovery from disordered eating yourself, I've got two online courses to help you make peace with food so that you can reclaim your life. And if you're a fellow anti-diet health and wellness professional, I've got a new course to help you master your message so that you can create your own thriving business fighting diet culture too. Learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash courses. That's christyharrison.com slash courses. Thanks again so much to Substantia Jones for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Saroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under their Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house, please?